Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Road Home Podcast. I'm Ethan Nickturn, and I'm here uh, with somebody whose writing I've admired for a while, um, journalist, author, mindfulness, patchy mindfulness practitioner, as he says, uh, Oliver Berkman, uh, who just wrote the new book. It's a really cool book um, that is a bestseller right now, um, 4,000 Weeks time management for mortals. So um, Oliver, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, so yeah, I want to have a conversation about time productivity, uh, what time is, you know, this is a really interesting book, because it's sort of, I would say it's kind of a anti productivity um, Bible in some weird way. Um, but uh, always like to start with the, the same dumb question, which is whenever somebody's on the podcast, who's a meditator just like to ask about your origin story with practicing meditation yeah i'm very i don't i i feel dishonest describe myself as a meditator uh necessarily from one day to the next but patchiness of meditation practice is my is, is definitely what marks me out how did i come to it i think i was dimly aware of of meditation from about sort of my late teens when i was driving myself crazy with anxiety over university work and being a sort of totally counterproductively perfectionistic nightmare person with regard to my work. We could maybe talk about that. Um, but it was uh, really only in the last 10, 12 years that I've sort of got back more more closely into, into that stuff. A uh, couple of Five day retreats is the week long retreats. I think is the is the most I can claim. Uh, yeah, it's always been there in the background. I guess that's not a very satisfying answer, but uh, there you go. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely somewhere infused in your view of the world because when you're talking about you know in your book, you know, there's mentions of Zen practice, which I think you know as we talk about time, I would say Zen is the Buddhist tradition that has kind of the most interesting things to say about the nature of time right um so, and, and just about the nature of the present moment it, it definitely seems like a mindfulness perspective or present moment centered perspective on the world is kind of at the heart of of your relationship to time management totally yes i mean i think the preponderance of zen specifically comes partly from the fact that the zen teachers seem to have all the best quotes so when you're writing a when you're writing a book, it's uh, the, you're you're rarely going to get a, a sort of more condensed statement of the point you're trying to reach than a than some kind of observation from a Zen teacher. Uh, and yeah, I think um, I feel like there are so many definitions that get given to that word mindfulness, but there is there is right at the heart of this book, I think uh, uh, the the question of the way that so much of our focus on how to use time uh, well ends up instrumentalizing time in such a way that we are not 
fully present in the moments that that we have that are the only things we have uh and that there's something sort of deeply counterproductive and ironic in the in the idea of becoming such a brilliant user of your time that you miss the actual moments of your <laughs> life so yeah speaking to that uh let's let's talk about the title for a sec i mean it's it's an interesting title 4000 weeks so what is 4000 weeks 4000 weeks is roughly the average ish human lifespan in the west sort of expressed in weeks it's not <laughs> uh, it's um if you live to be 80 you'll have had a few more obviously nobody knows how many they're going to get and plenty of people end up getting into the 5000s um it's really chosen just to sort of drive home the basic fact of the mm-hmm. the finitude the limitation um and it does you know i already i have lots of interesting feedback about this it's it it is definitely arresting i hope it's not so shocking that the last thing people want to do is read a book with it written on the cover because that would be commercially against my interests <laughs> but um i do think it's there's something very powerful about expressing it in weeks just because a week is the kind of thing that seems to be gone in a blink of an eye it's very easy not to value and yet 4000 is not a very large number of right. such things to take up a life yeah and there's something about that that reframing right part of this is that we have this really conceptual understanding of time and i've i've thought about that a lot that so many of humanity's problems right now are our inability to kind of like conceptualize you know what numbers even mean so reframing it like another example i give is when you look at wealth inequality you know mm-hmm. sometimes people say millionaires and billionaires right yes uh, which is like <laughs> saying you know bunny rabbits and elephants are the same kind of right. animal you know it's a thousand yeah. times so there is something very powerful about recontextualizing somebody's concept into a different frame that makes it feel much more i guess urgent is what 4000 weeks makes our lifespan seem right i suppose yeah i suppose one way of thinking about that is you know it's very easy to get your head around an hour but then you just assume that though those are they're, they are so numerous in an average life that that they're effectively infinite. It's pretty difficult in a way to get your head around a year, but we all know we only get a few of those. And there's a kind of interesting midpoint in choosing something that you can get your head around, but that you don't, you clearly don't have an unlimited number of. And I think that's where, where weeks uh, is quite a powerful framing. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, this this book is kind of coming out of you have had a, or had a column. I think it's over now in the guardian for a long time called this column will change your life, which I know you meant very straightforwardly as a very arrogant statement. You're not <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you look at a lot of sort of just being a modern person in the world and how to kind of contextualize your, your understanding of life and productivity and, what meaningful happiness is, right? So it seems like that's, I mean, would you say that that's kind of, is is this book about happiness and how our relationship to time makes us unhappy? Is happy on, the wrong word? <laughs> I mean, on some level, I think both the, uh, I've published three books. One, one was a collection of columns. I've written from the start two books. And I, and I think both of them are just really, another title for them could be, uh, you know, here's my best understanding of the of how to think about life you know it's mm-hmm. I, it's a one was more about happiness and the perils of positive thinking and then this is much more about framed as time mm-hmm. but but actually part of the point i'm concerned to make is that 
time management, if you really think what that phrase entails, is almost a synonym. Is almost a synonym for the question of how to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only various strange phenomena of publishing and of capitalism, I suppose, that have led to this idea that time management is just about, uh, you know, how to organize the projects in your job or uh, how to, why you should, you know, cook all your main meals in a big batch on Sundays. So you, so you save time during the week or something. Sure. That's important, I suppose, but it's, um, it's really the, it's, it's really like what, what isn't time management, I suppose, when you, when you think about it like that. Right. So it's interesting because as I was reading this, I'm, I'm, writing a piece of fiction right now about a high school teacher who's also a Zen teacher and, and it gives a Dharma talk about the nature of time and nice. kind of talks about time three different ways. But I want to get your take. Like, you know, you quote Heidegger, you know, you do quote the Zen tradition and they're like, what is time? <laughs> Just a small question. Putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, I think that uh, I, I'm obviously not going to answer this completely directly, um, <laughs> but hopefully not too indirectly. I think the the main thing to say is that time, and maybe this is a parallel to happiness, it's just a really, really weird thing that gets weirder the, the more you the more you think about it. I don't know. Um, I forget who the the quotation is from. It might be uh, uh, it might be Augustine, but I might be embarrassing myself about how um, uh, everyone knows what time is until you ask what time is and then it's then you you can't you can't say what it is um it isn't you you know i think in fact many of our problems come from the idea that we think of it as a resource as a thing that is separate from us that we get to use or that we are in somehow um or that we possess and it is it isn't quite any of those things um so, and, and I think that's why all these problems arise, because we're taking an attitude and, a, and, a, and an approach and then we're attempting to control something that, that isn't the thing that we, that we think it is. Um, so I guess what I'm doing here is, is, uh, is sort of creating a diagram of all the things that time is not in, in order to, in order to get away with answering your question in some in a sneaky fashion but i mean I, yeah i i just think there's the 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 stuff on heidegger which was a you know which was certainly a, a challenge to try to come to grips with myself let alone then turn into something uh, sort of consumable in in book form in my book form leads to this notion that time is in fact so completely definitional of who we are that that it kind of is synonymous in a sense with with being with human existence uh that we just are a portion of time and that there's if you can sort of get inside that thought and maybe we can talk more about that there's something very powerful about that notion that we are time and i don't think it's one that you know a physicist would accept but we're not talking in that vein now i suppose and that then makes a lot clearer why these attempts to master or dominate control or get a handle on time are sort of doomed to fail from the outset because they are trying to do something that just doesn't make sense. It's a category error in in the context that we're talking about. And um, in a sense, I mean, I think you could also say um, that – Right. When you're talking about 4,000 weeks, you're talking about like when we say time, we mean a very linear 
kind of commodified approach to time, right? And maybe that's the relationship with capitalism, although I imagine democratic socialism, you know, would, would still have some kind of commodified, you know, you'd have to demonstrate labor equals, you know, it's in the, it's in any economic system that like there's has to be some portion of labor or work energy that is related to how much time you spend doing it. Right. So 4,000 weeks is really about this kind of depleted sense of running out of linear time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's interesting because the Heidegger quote, it's, it's pretty almost spot on. I wonder if this is where the translators actually got it from, you know, Zen master Dogen and other Zen teachers talking about being time. Like right. sometimes it's translated, you know, being hyphen time. So like this more spontaneous relationship to being in time. Yeah, right. And I guess I guess what a lot of this comes down to is is how you hold that linear notion, whether you see it as a kind of a a useful organizing tool. We had to have some sense of that linear structure in order to make the appointment to talk today, and it wouldn't have worked if we if we hadn't. Uh Versus the idea that that is some kind of way of of taming time, of sort of imposing your uh, sort of ego onto time in a way that then just generates all sorts of stress and anxiety. It's not that it's not that timetables and schedules and plans can be dispensed with entirely, but they can be seen for what they are and for all that they are. Um, one of the Maybe this takes us off what you want to talk about. One of the quotes that, that does come from a very directly um, American Buddhist source in the book is that is that line from Joseph Goldstein about um, that what we forget when it comes to planning is that a plan is just a thought, a present moment statement of, of intentions, not a kind of uh, way of grasping the future and making it submit to our intentions for it. Um and that really gets to me at the this distinction between whether we're sort of understanding that we are in the present moment only or that we are the present moment only. And it's fine to have all these symbolic representations of linear time to manage and organize our collective lives together versus the idea that that we're somehow set, set we're somehow outside of time and we're going to somehow bring this yardstick or this um uh this this sort of linear notion of time under our under our control uh i don't know if that even made the yeah. slightest bit of sense it does <laughs> um i mean what i've what i found from reading the book is there's this real kind of back and forth between well storytelling and quotes from from history and then um kind of the, the practical level of of sort of questioning what our relationship to time means for our productivity, our time management, et cetera. And then the philosophical level of like, what, what is, you know, the existential questions of like, what is time? What is humanity? So if we got into the more like practical level, like what is good about wanting to be a productive human? Like there's, there has to be some good thing there about like wanting to get like your, like you talked about like wanting to clear out the inbox of your, you know, like there has to be something good about, having good methods of like clearing out your inbox no yeah absolutely no totally i think it's um i think uh, uh using the sort of generic label of efficiency for these things that there's probably a discussion to be had there too but it's like it's great to become more efficient at doing things that you uh that you want to do um the 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 issue is that efficiency 
or productivity for that matter, pursued in the absence of any other value is just a celebration of like getting any tasks done. Mm -hmm. The idea that getting to the end of the day and you've done a lot of things is, um, is there's something virtuous in that. I think that's, that's a problem that, that, that we're sort of, that's greatly reinforced uh, by the culture in which we, in which we live. So my um, my railing against efficiency and productivity in the book is not really a railing against uh, streamlining the ways that you work in order to do more of the things that you that you care about, but it's about what happens when efficiency is the only goal and how that then distorts uh, the the systems that that it's a feature of, and actually just generates more and more less and less meaningful work because the, the default thing that will happen to any system that you make more efficient uh, in the absence of any other val- guiding values is that you'll just attract more inputs and less mm-hmm. and less uh, there'll be less discernment among the inputs. So you'll just get, you, you, you get really good at handling your email. If all you're doing is focusing on that, all that happens is you just get a ton more email as a result. And um, right, right. so you don't actually get to the end of this uh process that you were hoping to get to the end of yeah yeah um and there is also i've noticed um that um there's a there's a kind of fine line between making yourself very available you know to the to the uh the interpersonal level of this you know to constantly being like able oh i want to be that person who responds to emails in like Mm -hmm. 10 minutes um and i've noticed that sometimes it's actually helpful to create a buffer that slows down, but both just, you know, being uh, a person who, you know, wants to do a lot and who a lot of people want or a fair number of people want stuff from, from that, yeah. that, that sometimes it's nice to actually just slow down the process and say, you know, don't, don't be the person who gets back to everybody on the same day. You know, I mean, I'm fascinated. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that in your, how that unfolds in your life, because yeah, if you if you just say yes to incoming demands, then firstly your activities will be structured entirely by by other people's priorities, which in the context of being a teacher or something is not all bad. Part of part of what you're there to do is to um is to incorporate other people's priorities. But in a very sort of um distorted way right because if you just if that's all you do then then all that happened and if you just for example and the same would be true of sort of running your work out of your inbox just reactively responding to everything that that comes in firstly other people are setting the agenda secondly other people are setting the agenda in context where like the cost to them of sending the email or making the query is 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 nothing and the cost to you of fulfilling it might be much more much more serious you end up you might end up just sort of serving the pushiest people in your mm-hmm. in your world instead of the um instead of the 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 most deserving so there's all sorts of ways in which you know if you're just re- trying to be as efficient as possible in uh, at dealing with life's inputs things will go wrong and get distorted yeah yes and then that also empowers the pushiest people to have the most power in the world which is you can know a good explanation of you know the a last lot. six years yeah, right, of, of right. American life. <laughs> like the the, yeah. the more sociopathically narcissistic you are, the more power you get. That's probably not a good system for <laughs> for time management <laughs> as a society. Um, yeah, I mean, so 
So it's, but it's interesting to actually take that. I mean, as a teacher, it's, it is interesting because you do have to, you know, especially when you're actually trying to help people and you're one of the people you're trying to help. You know, that's another thing about the, like the Buddhist teachings is sometimes people say like compassion or being like a bodhisattva is about helping others, which I think everybody kind of wants to do. I think it's a very small percentage of the human race that would say, I'm trying to do all this stuff and be super productive just for me, right? Even right. even people who are very um, maybe driven by power, they might say something like, I'm trying to make my family safe, you know? Um, right. So like, we're all trying to help others, but but there's a kind of question of like, what is actually helpful, you know? And is it actually helpful to be the person who's always speeding up other people's, you know, the, the interdependence of this, then the other person's inbox is fuller and fuller too. And they, they're moving at a faster pace, et cetera. I mean, it seems like what you're talking about with the, the finitude of life, you know, which I think we could also talk about the difference between a like time on a multiple lifetime scale versus like a scientific materialistic scale in which this finitude, like makes quite a lot of sense to just say, we do have these 40,000, I'm sorry, 4,000, like what he did, 4,000 weeks. Um, you know, like there's, it seems like the the finitude there's there's a quality of um there's never enough right you could you can never you could literally if you take that approach of productivity you can you can never do enough until the whole thing collapses either into personal stress and breakdown or social collapse right right absolutely it's a it's a it's a problem of limits that i think is absolutely paralleled in various sort of environmental and and economic contexts there's no I mean, I, I'd love to talk about how multiple lifetimes impacts this because I that blows my mind and I don't know exactly how you understand multiple lifetimes. But the, you know, here we are, at least in the the standard under standard Western understanding, with um the capacity to make infinite plans, to have infinite numbers of ambitions, to feel infinite amounts of uh obligation from about what we ought to be doing. Uh, all you know, being conscious gives us this capacity for sort of unlimited imagination. Uh, and then we're these material beings who have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of stamina and limited resources of all sorts of other kinds. So there's sort of a built-in mismatch. And I think the sort of underlying psychological theory that I'm trying to explore in the book is that an awful lot of what we do uh, with regard to time that goes wrong is because we're engaged not in trying to make the most meaningful use of time, but in trying to avoid the discomfort, the emotional discomfort of acknowledging this mismatch, acknowledging that reality is kind of stubborn and constraining and claustrophobic, and that we um, that we have to sort of be these uh, uh, sort of, you might say, infinite souls in a finite, limited material universe. And that means tough choices and it means sacrifices. And it means that every time you decide to spend a day or a lifetime doing one thing, you're deciding not to spend it on something else or a million other things. Uh, so I think it's that mismatch, I guess, that I'm that I'm really trying to explore. Yeah. And then if in that context, you jump onto some great new approach to productivity or efficiency, with the idea that that's going to um, get you out of this situation, that it's going to be the 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 back door to 
then you're effectively pursuing a kind of immortality through your through your quest for efficiency. And I think, you know, what happens then is eventually you burn out or eventually you, um, as a society, deplete the environment that is giving you sustenance and making the whole thing possible mm -hmm. in the first place. Um, so I just think, like, there's something really disappointing in accepting limitation, right? I mean, I mean, just I imagine somebody with great aspirations or like maybe... I don't know. Maybe they would love to read. I don't, I don't know. But like, I imagine a tech CEO, for example, reading your book, which I'm sure actually, cause it's, you know, it's a best-selling book and I, I'm sure it's actually making rounds in those circles. I actually, uh, one of my best friends who uh, works in media, I told him we were hanging out Sunday and told him about uh, upcoming podcasts. And he was like, I'm reading that book right now talking about <laughs> 4,000 weeks. And he pulled out his iPhone and he was reading it Excellent. on the very device that you, that you critique a lot in the book <laughs> as well, the, the, the smartphone. Um, so I imagine this is making the rounds, but do you imagine like somebody who's trying to start like, uh, or in the midst of a huge enterprise to achieve, to go, to build, to, you know, with that endless capitalist idea of building reading this and do you imagine them feeling disappointed or relieved or agreeing with it but not applying any of these principles to their notion of time it's an interesting question i mean my sense so far obviously it's totally self-selecting because i only hear from the the ones of that of that kind of person who has benefited and is happy that they read it instead of the ones who sort of you never hear from people who are threw it across you. Well, <laughs> I need to I just, learn how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do hear people unhappy with that. I just mean that you don't tend to sort of, if you dismiss a book as worthless, you're probably not going to email the author to tell him he wrote a worthless book. Whereas, right. if you if you really loved it, you might well uh, get in touch. So at this stage, anyway, there's something self self selecting. Um, I, I think that. Uh, well, firstly, I think that I was quite. I was quite deliberately in the book, trying to be fairly agnostic about what your goal in life is, right? I may happen to think that um, that certain kinds of work and certain kinds of commitment to important causes is a better goal in life than owning as many uh, Lamborghinis as you can possibly acquire. But I still think most of these dynamics apply in either case, right? That even if your goal is something that I might be quite... Uh, snooty about and say was not the path to a meaningful life. It's still the case that refusing to make tough choices about how you use your time, attempting to constantly get on top of absolutely everything instead of instead of understanding the real nature of your limitation, that's still going to help you acquire the fleet of sports cars, mm -hmm. right? I, I think even if that's your even if that's your goal. So there is that to say. I don't think that this is necessarily an a, an intrinsically. Uh, progressive or ethical or or anything like or moral kind of point to to be made about uh time but the other point i guess is just that you know i i my my hope about the reaction that that sort of person would have is that this kind of the kind of disappointment that we're talking about here is a sort of bracing and uh almost energizing disappointment this this feels like a slightly pema chodronish thought i think to talk about disappointment and disillusion in this way but comes up in other traditions and other uh writers as well but this idea that it, it's letting those 
it's sort of dropping back down to the ground of how things really are. That's exactly where you are again in contact with the ground and can make and can put one foot in front of the other because you're 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 no longer floating in this kind of escapist, avoidant, imaginary world of limitlessness. Um, I think as an aside, this is why digital distraction is such an important topic because it does the phenomenology of being online is that you it does feel limitless. It does feel um like you can be the sort of little god of your time instead of uh coming back down to earth with a bump. So I think that when people get what I hope I'm saying, it's that it is a defeat, it is a surrender, and it is a kind of disappointment. But that's the kind of defeat or disappointment that is the the prelude to something to really to something very engaged and uh, and proactive. Yeah, and that still allows you to have a like a kind of vision of of some kind of accomplishment. I mean, I know like writing a book is a multi year process. You know, you can't you can't do that without having right. some sense of like aspiration, intention, plan, you know, like action. No, absolutely. No, totally. Of course. Yes. And you can absolutely have aspirations in that context. In fact, I think it's the precondition for realizing some of those aspirations is to drop this kind of impossible or at least somewhat let go of this kind of impossible scramble to for a kind of omnipotent Mm-hmm. stance with respect to time yeah um so i do feel like we could have like a more philosophical conversation about like time and and the vision of multi-lifetimes if 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 you wanted to i mean if you're into you know you're, you're a person who wrote a book and um quoted heidegger and um kafka well you told stories about kafka and um and zen teachers and joseph goldstein but i think should we let's talk a little bit about digital distraction first? Sure, I'll be like guided. I'll be guided by you. It's absolutely fine. We can we can uh yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you know, you 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 take your book for a period of time into uh like arenas that it, you know v- very similar to uh watching the movie on Netflix, The Social Dilemma, you know, and um just about kind of your attention being sold, you know. And that's obviously not all that social media or, you know, your device or digital distraction does, right? It wouldn't just work if we were just like selling ourselves up to eyeball slavery, you know, um, it would, it, it does provide community and connection on the positive side. Right. So that's, that's the tricky thing. Like I, even a lot of my, you know, moral friends who are highly ethical people, like I got off Facebook, you know, a few years ago because of just, the devastatingly, I, I wouldn't even say immoral. I just think Mark Zuckerberg, if you hear him talk, he's just, it's like he has no moral right. compass at all, either good or bad. It's like he just does not think through the implications of his actions to the point where I heard now, I read a Vice article that they're talk, starting to talk about the next wave of this all being the multiverse using mm-hmm. the Oculus and VR. And he's having the people working on this read the novel Ready Player One which has a totally dystopian version of earth <laughs> where people escape into virtual reality to basically be able to survive how awful planet earth has become. And he's reading that as sort of like, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> <sighs> yes. Um, 
Sorry. But, but also, you know, Facebook, Instagram, you know, Twitter, like these do allow you to like connect with ideas. Like, I feel like I go on Twitter to hear different people's ideas and to not just have the New York times or Washington post, like tell me what I'm supposed to be caring about, you know? Um, Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the downsides are, are um, synonymous with the upsides, really. They are, you're being shown and connected to things that you want to be connected to in some sense. I think that what you're isolating here is that there are two senses of wanting to be connected to things on social media or to be shown certain things on social media. One is this very sort of impulsive, the appeal of gossip and uh, fights and things. And then the other is sort of higher values like community and finding out about things and yeah i'm absolutely not um uh, a sort of i have not renounced all social media uh, at all and i think that is partly because i'm full prey to its addictive qualities but i don't think it only it only is no i mean i think where i use where i talk about digital distraction in the book it's it's really a question of understanding the role that it's filling in our reality avoiding right uh mechanisms that doesn't follow that uh nothing good can can happen on there at all no right but it does create this situation where as we said with boundaries you know you you can't really you can't really boundary your experience if the place you go for your distraction and the place you go for the presence are the same device you know right yes so you need i mean it's something of a losing battle that i think you sort of have to fight anyway is to kind of uh, impose boundaries of time boundaries based on devices you know i i won't say i never but i almost never have twitter installed on my smartphone because that's a recipe for disaster for me having it on a desktop is relatively speaking a saner way to to interact uh with it and then when i then at least if i can physically get my body up from my desk i'm at least not going to be on <laughs> social media then you know so it's uh and and you know i have all sorts of aspirations that never quite that are never quite realized for staking out specific points in the day to go on and respond to people who've responded to me and and sort of be in the social media space for a, a 30 minute period and then stop and get up um it you know none of it none of it is ever perfect because as you know, to quote Tristan Harris, uh, there's always a thousand people on the other side of the screen at any one moment who are paid to try to keep you right. there. So I'm not going to win that battle, but it's I think it's a useful one to to participate in all the same, to sort of push back. Um, it's probably easier, and certainly in my experience, it has been easier to renounce it entirely. If you can, if you can weather the first week of being a sort of hermit from from social media, the subsequent weeks are are actually quite straightforward. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I, it's not where I'm at at the moment. And uh, prom- promoting a book, it certainly feels as though it's been very helpful to uh, right. be there. But I guess it's designed to feel like that. So. <laughs> well, or but you're going into it with a specific intentionality and purpose that that also can maybe serve, at least in the short term, as a, as a boundary, right? As a way to approach this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, you know, maybe this is getting a bit too grandiose or arrogant, but I hope that some of the message that I'm promoting through it is 
is at least slightly undermining of the worst excesses of it. So I hope I'm a relatively good citizen of social media in that respect. I mean, it's a little bit the same writing an email newsletter where half the subject matter is to do with not being overwhelmed by tasks and to-dos and emails in the modern world. I'm I'm in, I'm engaged in some form of uh, uh, contradiction there, but um, you can hope that your own email brings a little bit of calm in the middle of that, right. of that right. day, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting to just have that awareness that like the people on the other side of that screen, even if you know multiple people who work at social media companies, which I do like, mm-hmm. they're not your friend in that moment. Right. Like, I think this, a- yeah, yeah, yeah. This basic thing that people do, I think understand more and more, but that it's easy to lose sight of, you know, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product that, um, that the business model of social media is to sell your attention to advertisers. It is not um, that people, it is not primarily that people are paying to bring their interesting things to your eyeballs. Um, uh, I think that's very useful to keep, keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems like in that there, there is a critique in this about limitless productivity when you relate it to time. I mean, we don't have to get into Marxism, et cetera. Um, and I, I find having studied economics that, uh, very few people who use the terms capitalism or socialism actually know what those <laughs> terms historically mean in right. you know, political economy and stuff like that. But, um, you know, there is a relationship between profit, meaning limitless profit, which I would say is a different thing from wealth, like pushing everybody towards this, you know? And yeah. that's also an interesting thing, like even in some of the critiques of the, the mindfulness movement or huge corporations taking on mindfulness, you know, like Google search inside yourself program. There were some interesting critiques. It's like, is this just to help Google employees be able to work longer days and kind of survive the stress of, of productivity being placed on them? You know, is it, you know? Yeah, yeah no, I'm, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. There's an interruption. Sorry, there's a delay on the line. I think. So. Okay. Go ahead, please. Oh, I was just going to say, I think, yeah, I think this all map, it all sort of collects into this one big question of, it's it's to do with instrumentalization, right? It's to do with using time, using meditation, using the different ways we could be present in the moment, primarily for some future goal. And yeah, in the classic case, that future goal is corporate profit. Um, but uh, there's something wrong with placing all your value in the future, even if your goal is something more wholesome than corporate profit. It's still all to do with uh living in the future instead of right. instead of experiencing the moment especially if you don't even have a vision of that future other than like we'll just move to mars after we ruin planet earth like that's that's not a really good vision for a future <laughs> no but that yes. that is literally the vision by one of the most so-called forward thinking humans who exists now elon musk and you know jeff bezos too they're saying like we'll just ruin the planet and go somewhere else right the right and it's productivity a- scam yeah, no. And I mean, really, I think what that means is not that we're then going to live peaceful lives on and and peaceful or humble lives on Mars, right? It's just a question of, it, it really is just a question of seeing that on the other side of what we thought was the limit, there is actually another right. unlimited, you know, so it's just, it's the pursuit of ongoing limitlessness that is, that is the, the sort of psychological underlying drive there, I, I assume. Yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, this might be a good place to talk about finitude versus continuity, you know, which is the way I would think about the the sort of concept of like what happens after the 4,000 weeks, you know, right. which I think, I mean, this is really interesting because these are all philosophical discussions since Buddhism had like, you know, a 2,500 year history. It was, you know, none of these ideas are really new when you get into it, like oh, the basic, yeah. the basic structure. I mean, even the 18th, 19th century, you know, European white male thinkers are, you know, having conversations that were had in another form, you know, Absolutely. In, in lots of different places. Um, and I mean, I think historically we learned mostly about like, you know, places like Greece and then there, we're now learning about like the ancient conversations in places like Asia. We still don't have enough uh, of sort of the ancient conversations about these matters from the global South, you know, mm -hmm. but hopefully that's, that's developing now. But, um, you know, what I know the most about is the, the development of Buddhist philosophy and, and a lot of the critiques, the Buddhist philosophers over the years critiquing other worldviews. And, you know, so Buddhism is interesting about, limitations because it's both like really about acknowledging impermanence exactly as you're talking about like uh you know uh death is real it comes without warning this body will be a corpse you know that's a that's a daily contemplation in the tibetan buddhist tradition this body will be a corpse you know mm -hmm. um and at the same time there's a critique of a materialistic worldview which you know the 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 classic view of, of materialism in India is, is the idea that basically all reality is just material, right? Mm -hmm. So things come, you know, this idea that we are conscious being is really just a kind of accident of matter coming together in the right evolutionary pattern. And it comes from nothing. It lasts for about 4,000 4, weeks. And then it goes back to, Returns to nothing. dead yeah. matter. Um, and so that's, you know, I think classically that's framed more with like a, uh, almost like a hedonistic or Epicurean worldview of like, just life is short. The only thing we know is like peak experience is the yeah. point, you know, um, actually in, uh, her, her series, people make fun of me for this, but Gwyneth Paltrow's series on Goop on Netflix, which I thought there was a lot of interesting stuff in there, but she really frames the classic materialistic worldview like in the beginning she said like we only have one life life is short you know have the most fulfilling experiences you can you know and i'm like that's that's classic materialism you know <laughs> yeah um uh, at the same time there were a lot of interesting methodologies in, in the series that my friends make fun of me for actually watching the whole thing through but i i did and i <laughs> i enjoyed it but it was interesting to just have that view of the philosophy right so yeah is there i mean how does this change if we actually are thinking beyond 4,000 weeks in some way, not that you'll be in this body, but that there is a future beyond that, that we have to attend to in some way. I mean, this is such a, I find this such a sort of stimulating topic and I also feel completely adrift in it. I feel like, well, this is, this is a podcast. We're supposed to feel adrift. Good. Excellent. I mean, just to, just to get this book written, I think, you know, I absolutely had to draw a box around what I was focusing on and, and what I wasn't focusing on because I have, because there's enough inside the box. You know, it's pretty much the whole of uh, earthly life in a sense. So, yeah, I do, I do pretty much just uh, 
implicitly assume that uh, that the end of that life is, is the end of everything. There was a very interesting engagement with the book, a review from uh, from a Christian viewpoint that I read a little while ago that sort of, it sort of heaped praise upon the book and said that, you know, if the writer wasn't Christian, he would probably just think it was the perfect guide to, to meaningful life as it was, you know, ah. he's not, we're not mere mortals and therefore any book that is subtitled Time Management for Mortals and assumes that we are simply mortals um, has got to be incomplete. And it was a very sort of gracious way of of both complimenting and completely undermining what I'm uh, <laughs> what I'm what I'm saying and obviously that that is a different perspective that's a theistic perspective that says you know actually the real reason that we shouldn't attempt to be the gods of our own time is that that job is already taken and that maybe the universe doesn't care what you do or as I as I sort of suggest at various points in this book but that but that God does um I, I just don't know enough. Maybe you can tell me about the um, the 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 Buddhist or your Buddhist understanding of um, of multiple lives to understand what this would entail for this perspective. I mean, at the most basic level, I do think that um, you know, there's clearly reality goes on beyond our own deaths. Clearly, future generations and non-human beings and like these are all legitimate focuses of consideration when you're making a question about when you're asking a question about how it is meaningful to spend your time. So there is a continuity in in that sense, even if it is just, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and that's it. Well, those ashes and dust are part of a a part of a larger system in which we're all implicated so i don't know what the role of sort of personhood in these in these ideas of multiple lives are or whether it is a sort of poetic way of talking about the sort of ultimate interdependence of everything and everybody uh, but yeah there's clearly a way that you could interpret an, a sort of hyper secular understanding of 4000 weeks and the finitude as like nothing mattering beyond the the day that you die and um i'm sure we'd both want to disagree with that as a as a right. way of understanding meaning well it doesn't even have to be a question of one's own personal you know future lifetimes or past lifetimes you know which is not i mean any theory we could make about that would be un, unscientific as well you know right um and uh, that that's actually would be part of the modern Buddhist critique. I've heard Robert Thurman and others make this that scientific materialism, basic the, the idea that consciousness is all physical, is a completely unscientific statement because it's making a it's making a premise that cannot be tested in an experiment. You know, right? And, and it's actually taking the less likely of the two possibilities, the two possibilities being something continues that we don't quite understand versus everything ends. And then you look at a universe where things do continue, you know, yeah. seeds become trees, become fruits, become seeds. Like there is a clear cont continuation and it's saying the less likely of the two uh, possibilities for an experiment that you can't do is definitely true. So that would be... Yeah, yeah I see that. The, so that view of scientific materialism kind of disobeys its own premise. That's that's the idea. Um, 
And that's an argument for kind of idealism, or is which may be similar or related to mind-only Buddhism, which I don't pretend to understand. But there's an there's a way of or panpsychism in some forms, which is now newly newly respectable in uh, in academic circles. Right, the idea that the idea that the answer to all of this is that consciousness is primary and everything else is is somehow a function of or within that is it seems quite like a pleasing a pleasing yeah. way of thinking about it i don't i don't know what that means for or would mean for you know uh the themes of my book but um anyway right. i don't it's also probably not what you're talking about no 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 it's i mean it's just uh the main thing i'm thinking about is like sort of looking at time trying to find some way to live in time that's very urgent and very much present the way you're you're describing with this kind of call to like actually <laughs> embracing life as it is you know and and knowing what life is and what the limitations of that are um and all the ways we want to deviate from our limitations um that make us unhappier right and at the same time looking at the scope of our influence within those 4000 weeks as having a, a, a broader impact especially going forward you know because right it does seem like the world's getting very nihilistic you know in this sense of like you know i for example i never hear powerful people such as um those you know those tech billionaires or any republican elected official in the united states never hear them talk about the future never hear them talk about what they think the world looks like 50 years from now and why it's going to be a good place you know, right. it's, it's very, um, it seems like the, the, the cycle is of productivity just kind of drives us into the ground to this place of collapse. And is there a way to look at long-term sustainability, both of being a being and society, you know, at the same time as we're, we're just kind of embracing our strong limitations, you know, in a way that you're talking about in this book. I mean, yeah, it's a really good point, isn't it? You, what, the, what those billionaires are doing is making personal preparations for when the future turns out to be very bad, but they're not talking about what the what yeah. the the future could be, collectively speaking. Um, I think those two things are, in fact, that you mentioned at the end there, are, in fact, completely consistent. I, at, the, at the end of the book, I write about this outlook that I sort of slightly frivolously call cosmic insignificance therapy and the great relief of understanding that... Uh, that the, 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 the importance of what you do and the decisions that you make are, are really, you know, in the scheme of things, uh, incredibly tiny and, and what a sort of liberation that can be. And one of the conversational pushbacks that one obviously gets is, well, you know, no, it really matters what we do uh, now in terms of the fate of the environment, most obviously. Uh, perhaps it doesn't matter very much as on the individual level, but it certainly as a collectively it, it matters um to the future in a in a very sort of decisive fashion i think what i want to say about that really is just that the, the way that these things combine the idea of a focus on the future with an understanding of your own limitations is precisely in not making it the standard for your own meaningful contribution to humanity's uh, time that that you are able to 
save the planet, that you are able to um, bring about the end of income inequality, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That, that actually understanding how tiny each of us is, is almost like a, it, it's the first step in then being able to make the contribution that we can make a sort of right-sized understanding of our own contribution uh, rather than being sort of paralyzed by this notion that everything's terrible and unless we can figure out a way to have an impact that a human on it, on their own or even in community cannot have, then there's no point in doing anything. So I think it's sort of anti-nihilistic in, in that sense. And I'm always struck by, you know, there's a certain kind of I don't know how familiar you are with like Wendell Berry's work and things like that, but there's a certain mm-hmm. there's a certain um, aspect of that which says, you know, if you're concerned about uh, landfills and pollution, you know, by all means join an organisation, but also like pick up the trash on your street. And this is a question I feel like that comes up in Buddhist circles a lot, this notion that whether these small and local changes, the things that you really can do right now after listening to this podcast, you know, whether they are, whether it's sort of a poetic or symbolic thing to suggest that they are absolutely essential to the whole, whether it's a purely mathematical thing that, you know, if everyone does it, then maybe we can make a difference or whether there's something stranger and deeper going on. Charles Eisenstein writes about this a lot, the environmentalist economist, you know, that, that there may be something some way beyond our understanding that kind of embodying certain values is is more important than the degree to which you can sort of quantify the impact of that on your on your street or on your on your neighborhood um and then this gets us into that strange topic of whether doing lots of formal meditation on the cushion is the best thing you can do for the environment because somehow it makes humanity a better a better thing I, i i don't know where i stand on on any of that um well i think that's i think that notion of coming of limitations bringing us back to our individual contribution i think that's that feels like an incredibly optimistic limited (laughs) but realistic and optimistic place to end which which feels feels like the right right message for the book that you're trying that you wrote you know which is a great book Thank you. No, I really hope it is kind of optimistic. I keep coming back to these words like bracing or in terms of what I would like it to be. It's, it's the acceptance of something unpleasant that, um, that has the effect of providing energy and focus to do things that, that feel like the right things to be doing. So, um, yeah, so the book again is 4,000 weeks time management for mortals. And, uh, you can, you can, Follow Oliver also on uh, Twitter, where he's at Oliver, and Berkman is spelled B-U-R-K-E-M-A-N. Um, and I, I, it's a good read. It's not just a sort of like, here's how to do things, but it's a it's a really good balance of storytelling and, and philosophy. Uh, it's published by FSG Books. Nice to share a publisher uh, with you. Yeah. And um, yeah, I would love to have you back on the podcast sometime to uh, to talk about more more far out and and very practical topics at the same time i'd love it and i'd love to understand uh multiple lives and reincarnation so we must do that <laughs> we all would um <laughs> well anyway thank you oliver berkman and uh for the road home podcast uh this is ethan nick turn and we'll see you all next time 